All right, back on the Fan Morning Show, Sportsnet 590. The Fan, just a reminder, the Blue Jays will continue their four-game series against the New York Yankees tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern on Sportsnet, Sportsnet Now, and Sportsnet 590. The Fan, you can also find the game on sportsnet.ca slash 590 in the Sportsnet app. It'll be Garrett Cole versus one of the more reliable guys we got right now, Chris Bassett, and then they will wrap up the four-game series Nestor Cortez and Jose Barrios going head to head. The Blue Jays have got to get a couple wins. Not a couple wins. They got to stop the bleeding here, though. This cannot be another four game sweep to a division rival. Uh, they got to get a couple wins or a win, a big couple games ahead here for the New York Yankees. Would you love? Jays. Would you love anything more in your life than Garrett Cole getting caught with sticky stuff tonight? Like honestly, like things I want in this world. Kyle Dubas back as Leafs GM, Austin Matthews to sign a contract extension, and mm-hmm. maybe third on that list for today and today only, Garrett Cole to have to answer questions with, uh, I, don't, I don't even know that. His, <laughs> his deer in the headlights face, we've had a lot of this going around lately. We saw it from Aaron Judge. I referenced the Vikings cruise scandal of many, many years ago. Garrett Cole's deer in the headlights of mm. please just make these questions go away. I wish I could dig completely into the earth's core and not have to deal with this anymore. It is my favorite thing in sports. So please let him get dinged tonight. Yeah, let not the, dra- happen, let the but- drama continue because we know the drama will continue for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And to discuss the Toronto Maple Leafs and what's at stake this week and what to expect beyond. We got Matty Marchese, producer of the Jeff Merrick Show and host at Sports at 590. The fan, he was hosting the Jeff Merrick Show yesterday at a really notable conversation conversation with Elliot Friedman. Good morning, Marchese. How's it going, guys? Uh, we're doing pretty well. Uh, tell us about, uh, you know, that conversation with Friedman, where the Leafs and Dubas might be at at this moment. Uh, it seems like a hour-by-hour hour thing, and uh, granted, that was several hours ago, but uh, your conversation with Friedman, what did you glean from it? What stood, stood out as most interesting uh, from your conversation yesterday? So Elliot said and had reported that um, there was a deal in place essentially for Kyle Dubas and they really kind of grinded it out over the weekend and then everything kind of came to a screeching halt at the press conference when we all know what Kyle said where this year took a toll on his family and the expectation among so many it seemed like was that Kyle was going to return and that was was almost a, a slam dunk and then you know he drops that bombshell and everybody's kind of holding their breath here but it it does sound like they they would like to have an answer by the end of this week it, it, that's what i'm guessing because there are you know as much as we all opine for Kyle Dubas's return and and hope that you know everything is okay with his family and you and you really do hope that they the, the Leafs do have to make a decision here on on who's going to be the GM because there are big decisions on the horizon. There's the draft coming up. There is, um, you know, free agency and and maybe the trading of one or two core pieces off of this team. So, I I have this sneaky suspicion that Kyle will be back, and it I don't know what exactly that looks like. Obviously, as the GM, but I do wonder about. Um, just the comment he made about if it's not here, basically it's not anywhere. Like I'm not going to pop up somewhere else. That to me says that he wants the job, but it's going to take a serious conversation 
with his wife about you know what the future looks like mm. with this organization though and we and all three of us have had co- maybe not conversations like that but we've all had conversations where it's not just us making the decisions anymore um so i totally get it and to be honest with you guys i was i was kind of surprised at the emotion he's an emotional guy we've seen the videos of him in the press box but to go that far, that to me tells me, because Kyle is generally speaking when he speaks to the media, kind of reserved. For him to say that to me means that this was this is not a farce. This is truth. And the fact that he started to get a little bit emotional tells me that this is a really difficult decision for him. So the sense that Maddie isn't that, uh, you know, Dubas is going in there and, you know, not speaking out of both sides of his mouth, but is actually actively negotiating with Shanahan. Because when I saw the clip yesterday and, and listened to you and Freege, I thought, okay, there's uh, they're, they're, you know, trying to grind each other out a little bit here. And, and you sense that it's not about that. It is strictly a personal thing and not a professional thing that he's chasing at this moment i think so i I, listen when you're the when you're the gm of the toronto maple leafs i think you get paid well enough i i i don't think that kyle used that as a tactic i don't think that he operates that way in the media when we when we look at how things are done within this organization nothing is done publicly very little gets out when it comes to the Toronto Maple Leafs, much like it does in Detroit, much like it does with the Islanders. So I don't think that would be a very different Kyle Dubas than we have seen in the past. Look, they, they don't allow anybody but the GM, the president or the head coach to speak. You don't, you know, on the, on the team's behalf, you don't hear from assistant coaches like you may do in some other markets. I mean, that's kind of changed, but I, it would be a very surprising thing if Kyle used a public statement like that to help leverage himself to whatever it is, more um, more power within the front office and the organization, more money. I just I would find that really hard to believe with Kyle. Yeah, I think the interesting thing that I keep coming back to is with it is that whatever way he chooses to exert it, if it is, you know, and obviously the power part of this is a different dynamic, that is something that there is a actual, you know, hard stop on at some point in time. But if it's just a money thing and MLSE has decided Kyle Dubas is their guy, you know, he's, I know we all feel different ways about how he's negotiated deals. He's negotiated deals before. It's not going to be the thing that ends up uh, standing in his way. You know, I think the interesting thing will result in this is if they have to move on because he decides not to come back. You know, we know Brandon Pridham has been approached. I don't know if the interview has actually happened yet with the flames or not, but we know there's been some, some tire kicking there. Do you think the Leafs would be better off going with a more experienced GM who is coming from outside of the system? So, you know, let's, let's just pick a name, Brad Treliving, for example, or do you think they would be better off with somebody like Pridham again, just to pick a name, somebody who, completely understands the goings on in the organization, but maybe is learning on the job as to what it actually is to, to be a GM. Cause that was so much of the criticism of Dubas. It wasn't that he couldn't do it. It's just, should a guy be learning on the job in the most important part in Leafs history? And if that was the most important part, it's only more important now. Yeah, it absolutely is important, which is why I think that you need to have someone Someone who has a, a track record of making a big splash only because and not well, not only, but the biggest reason is, is this team has to make a big splash going forward and whether or not a, a new GM is going to come in and be a little bit gun shy. Like, I think that's the, the concern. If they're told you have to come in and you have to move one of these core four guys, 
it may or may not be the result that you're looking for. The one thing that we can say about, let's say it's a guy like Brad Schliving is he's not afraid to take a big swing. And did it turn out all that great? The Matthew Kachuk trade? No, not in the first year, but at, at, at the surface level, when we saw that trade, my first inclination was, wow, that looks like a steal. They got, you know, a really good defenseman in Mackenzie Weger. They got a top scorer in Jonathan Huberdeau. They got uh, a former, uh, they got Cole Schwinn and they got a first round pick. So on the outset, you look at that deal and go, that's in theory, the type of package that you would expect for one of these players. And Brad Living would be a guy that could make that deal. I think that at this point, they need veteran leadership in that front office. And if it's Kyle Dubas that comes back, he's had plenty of experience on the job. He knows the market. That's great. Um, the other thing that people don't necessarily think about when we talk about this role as the GM, it's got to be somebody that has dealt in a corporate environment. It's it's something that Brad Treliving did in Calgary. It's something that we've seen, you know, like maybe that was the disconnect between Ron Hextall and the uh, Fenway Sports Group. Like, so there is that aspect of managing up because that's what happens in a situation like this where you don't have one sole owner and two of the owners of the team are corporations. Like, it's a totally different dynamic. So I think that's part of it as well. Um but at the end of the day, I think they need veteran leadership in that front office. And I think that they need some veteran leadership with the head coach. So there are lots of decisions to make. And if Kyle Dubas does not return, like I think, and Cole, um, sorry guys, it's early. Sheldon Keefe is also waiting in the balance here too, because he has no idea what his future is. He hasn't been told, I'm assuming what happens? Maybe it's a situation where if Kyle's back, then Sheldon's back and one of the core four is not. I could see that type of scenario going forward. So I think a veteran guy, if it's not Kyle Dubas, is probably the right answer. The only thing is you would love to keep Brandon Pridham around because he can maneuver the cap because, well, he wrote the CBA and the cap rules and all that stuff. The guy knows every loophole that there is in the CBA when it comes to the cap. So you'd love to keep him around, but if Calgary wants to to bring him on board, then they're going to have to figure something else out. So, you know, one of the ideas I've heard bandied about, and I'll admit this was more kind of people spitballing in the immediate aftermath of the Dubis avail than things we've heard since, but the idea of creating another layer the idea of allowing Dubis to effectively step back a little by giving him more of an oversight role of somebody like Pridham. To me, as much as people have not soured so much on the front office, like most of the ire this offseason has been towards the players, not been to Dubis. But I just don't think there's any world where you can sell promotions for everybody. Pridham's getting a bump. Dubas is getting a bump. Shandy's getting a bump. It just seems like that situation in and of itself would be, would be kind of untenable. Well, what do you make of that, Maddie? So my only thing is, is, is it untenable to the fan base? And is that who they're trying to appease? Because if they, if the organization believes that that is the best course of action right now to keep Kyle Dubas, let's say he becomes the president of hockey operations. Brendan Shannon is the president of the Toronto Maple Leafs, but you can have a president of hockey ops. And then Brendan Shanahan continues on in more of a business role. Or if Brendan Shanahan is even around, let's not forget, we haven't heard from him yet. We're still waiting to see where the chips lie with all this and what his relationship is with Kyle Dubas. Cause we've heard 
maybe that it took a little bit of a hit this year. Um, I get what you're saying about promotions. And can we, can we really look at that and say, this is the right thing to do at this moment in time. But I think because the criticism has fallen on the players this time around, like, like you said, I don't think there, there isn't a lot of criticism to Kyle Dubas and the roster that he built the trade deadline that he had, or at least there shouldn't be in my opinion, because Morgan Riley said it best. You know, he gave, he brought in the players that can win a Stanley cup and help this group. And the players on the ice didn't perform. Maybe some of that is part and parcel with coaching mistakes. I don't know. We we don't know what goes on in that locker room, or at least we, you know, we sometimes we like to think we do, but we don't. And so I think you can sell it because I think the heat is off the front office a little bit in that we know that changes need to be made. The way that Kyle Dubas spoke about knowing that changes needed to be made and, you know, going out and listening to, offers or making calls on players. This is something that we haven't heard from Kyle Dubas every other year. It was him shoulder to shoulder with either the coach or the president saying, we believe in this core. We can, and we will all that stuff. That narrative has changed. So I think that it's almost as if we're seeing a different side of Kyle Dubas and a different side of this front office where you probably could justify it, especially if it means keeping Kyle Dubas in the organization. If you believe that he is a key part of this front office. We're chatting with Matt Marchese of the Jeff Merrick show and formerly of the King wild. Um, nice. So we talk, nice. <laughs> we talk, Boy, a- you are your father's son. <laughs> Sorry. I had to do it. <laughs> it's, it's a callback from uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, good discussion about Maddie's elite prospects page. Um, so we talk a lot about, like, let's say Dubas stays, whatever. It actually doesn't really matter. We're going to talk about a Marner or Nylander trade regardless. So lots of talk about Marner or Nylander trade, but not as much talk about what should be coveted in return. What do you think the Maple Leafs should be trying to get back if they trade one of these star players? Man, it's such a it's such a hard thing because if you're trading one of those guys, you immediately lose an elite forward. Right? I think we can safely say you you lose a really, really talented offensive player. I think what they would want is a young defenseman who can turn into a top two defenseman. And can you get that in that trade? I mean, it may be difficult, um, but I think that's where you have to look. You, I, I think there was a big flaw in how the Leafs broke out of their zone. And that's partially because they didn't have the guys that could do it against a really good forecheck. Is that the be-all, end-all? No, but I think having Matthew Nyes come into the organization, it at least alleviates some of what you would lose with trading a guy like Marner or Nylander. And I'm not, and for anybody that's listening, I'm not saying that Matthew Nyes is going to come in and he's going to be an 80-point scorer because he's not. But it does at least help you a little bit. The other thing is, is that we also have no idea what's out there when it comes to what people are willing to trade for these guys, because I I love how everybody keeps saying, Oh, well, who's the guy that you would trade for Mitch Marner? Well, last time I checked, you have no idea because Mitch Marner was never made available. I would bet dollars to donuts and I love donuts and I love dollars. I would bet that when somebody called about Mitch Marner, that it was an immediate hang up from Kyle Dubas because he wasn't trading him. I, I feel the same way about William Nylander. But you don't know what's out there until you start asking. So, 
everybody keeps saying, well, you know, the, the Matthew Kachuk thing. Well, once Matthew Kachuk became available, there's a lineup for Matthew Kachuk. And when that deal was made, you can look at it and say they got a 100-point scorer, they got a first-round pick, and they got a top-two defenseman. That was for Matthew Kachuk, who was coming off of a career year. Mitch Marner coming off of an incredible season. Same with William Nylander. Are you going to get the same package for um, William Nylander than Mitch Marner? No, because of the extra year on the deal. So I think that's the type of return because I think, guys, I hate to be this guy, but I think it's going to be Marner that ends up going. I, I look at the the contract. I look at he's a Selkie finalist. And in a year where if Patrice Bergeron was not around, maybe Mitch Marner wins the thing. And as a winger, you guys know that's really impressive because it hasn't happened since Yuri Lettinen like you know 20 years ago. So I, I think that he's the one who gets the most value for you. And it would be a Matthew Kachuk-like return that I would hope for that you're getting back. You're gonna, you hopefully get a really good scorer back and a, and a really good defenseman. I, I think you can't make that deal unless that's what you get. I do wonder about, you know, how Marner played in the playoffs in the second round specifically, how teams evaluate with that because Matthew Kachuk is a different player, and we all know that. So I think that's what you're looking for in return. It's got to be a, a, a top six forward, probably closer to six or five than it is to one or two. That's pretty obvious. But then you got to get a top flight defenseman in return. I'm less concerned about getting a first round pick because you still have a window to win with Austin Matthews here. I know John Tavares is nearing the end of his contract or, or the end of his, his time of being a, a, an elite producer under that contract. Sorry. So I think that's what you have to look at. Any deal that you make has to be something that keeps you relevant right now. And you can't be trading for, you know, this prospect or that prospect because the window is still it's it's closing, but there is still a window of opportunity here. Yeah, the idea that a first round pick would be would be included just makes no sense unless it's like a nuclear level first pick, like you're going to the Ducks for Fantilli plus or something like that. That's the only way I think anybody could be talked into it. But man, you want to talk about playing with fire, throwing a guy like Fantilli or whoever you'd take it two or three or something like that into the fire that is Toronto and this need to win uh, thing. You know, one name I was kind of wondering about, and it's more the team I'm wondering about than the name in and of itself. But the Buffalo Sabres, you know, they're a team that has a lot of really nice young pieces. And Tage Thompson popped off in a huge way last year. Now, I don't think they're rushing to trade him by any means. But they got pieces on the blue line as well in Dalene and Power. I don't know. I wonder if there's a fit there for a team that needs to, I think, get a little more dynamic. Obviously, it would be a big shot in the arm to them getting a guy like Marner. That's somebody I've kind of bandied about. But it's just so hard to know the kind of trade value for guys at kind of completely different points, you know, because I kind of looked at this as what would a Marner-Thompson deal look like? And it's, you know, Thompson's coming off a career year. His shooting percentage is 15%. It's not going to stay that way forever. But he's also just about to hit his extension that pays him 7-1 for the next handful of seasons. Whereas Marner, I think we all agree he's the better player, but he's a winger and he's not as big and he's and he has the contract issues. So it's just so tough to kind of know where to go with that. I would I would like to see them kind of get a blue chip player back as opposed to the bunch of pieces. And obviously if you can do a deal like Calgary where you're getting kind of several high end pieces, you, you like to do that. But it's just it is so hard to know 
where Marner's value is across the league right now, especially given the types of players. Cause I, it's not going to be a like one for one problem for problem trade. And that's just why it is so impossible to put this together. And it, it just goes back to where we started. That's why I think Dubas has to be back as the GM because the learning curve for somebody making this, you know, Brad Living again, let's just throw it a name. He's a guy who's made these trades before he knows what Mitch Marner is. Sure but he doesn't know what this Leafs team is. He hasn't had the chance to look them in the eye, all that stuff. And it's just why I continue to go back to, I don't think you can afford to have a GM change at this point in time. That's why I think Kyle Dubas has to be back and it will be kind of kind of cataclysmic for this franchise uh, if he's not, even if it's somebody in-house. Well, then there's the uh, the Austin Matthews conversation in in all of this, right? Like, so when you're you're talking about a team that, and I'm I'm sidetracked here just because you got my the wheels turning in my brain, mm-hmm. which is really hard to do at 7:22 for me. Um, you go, but pitch I that, look, you go pitch that trade to to Friedman or Merrick. Let me know what they think yeah. about that, okay? Well, I, I'll <laughs> tell you, they'll say they're not trading within the division. But the okay. team that the team that was of interest to me when you said. Buffalo and a team that has some nice pieces. The team that came to my mind was Winnipeg. And I wonder about them. And and Mark Shifley's 30 years old. I, I, I understand that. But the guy that immediately came to my mind, because you're going to need to move John Tavares to the wing. The guy that came to my mind was Pierre-Luc Dubois in a deal. Big center can play in the playoffs. And you, and you're obviously going to get more than Pierre-Luc Dubois in that deal and and no you're not getting Josh Morrissey so I apologize but just what I everyone do- in Toronto wants a small defenseman who moves the puck and isn't all that physical and got uh, got ran out of uh, the late end of the season just what everybody wants Maddie but he but he was pretty good at, and he is may, paying uh, getting paid 6.25 but anyway that would have been something but the Austin Matthews conversation and all of this is fascinating to me because Austin Matthews holds all the cards here and does he want a new GM to come in And, and does he trust that new GM? Well, I think he trusts Kyle Dubas. My only question is, is does, does Austin Matthews want to be here with Mitch Marner? Cause I'm pretty sure that he does. Is that a deal breaker in all of this? Like if it's Mitch Marner is the guy that they want to deal. Does Austin Matthews say, I'm not signing an extension. If you trade Mitch Marner. He's my buddy. I want it. I want him to be here long-term. And if he's not, then I will choose to not be here long-term, even though I don't think that Austin Matthews deal here next is not long-term. I think it's three years. That is a big thing that we haven't talked about a lot. Like how much power does Austin Matthews wield in all of this as it pertains to moves that are going to be made this summer. Maybe he likes William Nylander less. I don't know. And maybe he says, well, if you want me to sign an extension, that's the guy that you're going to move. And so Austin Matthews plays a big role in all of this. If the new GM comes in, if it's not Kyle Dubas, is he going to have that same rapport? Probably not. And and is he going to be able to call the shots like that? If it's a veteran guy, Maybe he doesn't want to hear Austin Matthews go, I want that guy, I want that guy, I want that guy. And then he says, well, I'm not doing any of that. Maybe it's you that we're going to ship out. Like, there is a lot of little things going on here, and it's something that I don't know how often we see it in hockey. I think we see it enough. Like, I think Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl have a lot of say in what goes on in Edmonton. I think that Sidney Crosby has a lot of say in what goes on in Pittsburgh. So there are guys that carry that kind of power. But the difference is, is that when it's mattered the most, 
I mean, Connor McDavid and, and Leon Dreisaitl have had incredible playoffs the last two seasons. It hasn't resulted in a championship, but they went to game six this year in the, in the, in the, um, the conference semifinals against the team that was first overall in the Western Conference. Last year, they lost in the conference final to the eventual Stanley Cup champions. Like, they could lose to the Cup champs back-to-back years. Toronto hasn't had that. They lost to Tampa last year, sure, but then they beat them this year, and now they're going to lose, and then they lost to Florida. So does Austin Matthews really have the power that, or deserve the power that these other guys have in front offices? That's where the Kyle Dubas conversation comes in for me because of the relationship that he has with Austin Matthews. It's going to be a an absolutely fascinating offseason, and uh, the fireworks will be massive because I don't think that there are small moves that are going to be made here. Yeah, to me, that's a bridge too far. Like, I'm okay with Austin Matthews wielding his power, but if he wants to actually, uh, you know, run the team and decide who's in and who's out, um, I I think they have to seriously push back on that, even if it's an uncomfortable scenario, because he can't be telling you what's best for the team, because I don't think he knows, as as good as he is as shooting the puck into the net, I don't think he's going to be the best talent evaluator available to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, Quickly here, Maddie, the best team available, or not available, the best team left is whom? Oh boy. I I've really wavered on this because I, I, I would love to say it's Carolina just because structurally they're incredible and they've been doing it without star players and Vegas has played really well. Florida is Florida. I think they're going to be a pain for Carolina, but I think I got to go with Dallas. I, I, the way Dallas is now built, they're not just a one line team. They, they brought in Max Domi and Evgeny Dodonov, uh, hashtag NHL revenge for that one, Dodonov against the Vegas Golden Knights. It would be incredible if he just went off against them after they tried to trade him last year. Um, but they have depth. They have Joe Pavelski back healthy. And they've been able to get through two rounds of the playoffs without getting you know that elite Jake Ottinger performance in a series that we saw last year against Calgary. They've gotten only two goals from Jason Robertson in these playoffs. And Rope Hintz is playing at an absolutely incredible level. So I look at the depth that Dallas has, and I look at that that money goalie factor that Jake Ottinger is. And I don't see that with any of the other goalies. Like, Sergei Bobrovsky has certainly played well, but I, eventually he's going to turn into Sergei Bobrovsky. I have, it just, it's unfortunate it didn't happen against Toronto. Freddie Anderson has been playing well, but how much of that is because of the system that plays in front of him? And Aiden Hill has kind of caught lightning in a bottle, but I also expect him to come back down to earth as well. Jake Ottinger, for me, is the difference maker the rest of the way. He plays on the Dallas Stars. They've got a lot of depth. And that Miro Heiskanen guy on D is really good, too, playing with the with the fishbowl um, and looking like a Norris-caliber defenseman that we all expected he would be. I think it's Dallas. And as we know, guys, the best team that's left never wins the Stanley Cup. So I'm probably wrong in all of that. Yeah, that may be true. Uh, We appreciate you getting up this morning, Maddie, and enjoy all the uh, Tempe Arena discussion today on the show. Oh, yeah, that's going to be so fun because I am so well-versed in Tempe Arena and have to host for (laughs) Jeff today. It should be wonderful. Thanks for having me, guys. Tax code Maddie. Have a good show, buddy. (laughs) That's it. Take care, guys. Uh, That was Maddie Marchese, who will be hosting the Jeff Merrick show today. Let's get to something to chew on, brought to you by Great Canadian Meats. Yum, yum, yum. Okay, this from my buddy Brandon Weil of The Score. Uh, These were stats uh, accurate as of last night. 
Uh, so there might be slight, 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 slight change. But it underscores how difficult Alec Manoa's season has been and how he ranks among starting pitchers in Major League Baseball. 74 qualified starting pitchers so far this season as of last night. Manoa ranks in home runs allowed 60th, mm. in opposing batting average 63rd, in ERA 69th, in walks 73rd out of 74, in whip 73rd out of 74, and in Fangraph's war 73rd out of 74. He has been, you can make the argument, the worst pitcher in baseball uh, that uh, that starts games. And that is a major fall from grace after he was the story or one of the key stories last year for the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. I wish I could sugarcoat it for you. I would say that somebody as talented him, as him isn't going to completely fall off the face of the earth. But if a pitch that was so important to you just isn't doing what it's supposed to do, that can kind of happen. We've seen it happen to guys before. So yeah, very, very concerning stuff uh, from, from Manoa there. And look, I mean, you know, it's a problem for this year, but if it doesn't get sorted out this year, it's a problem for the building blocks for this organization because he is a massive, massive part of that. Uh, we got to fly because we don't want to make Caleb Joseph wait. We have the former MLB catcher and the guy who was on the panel last night with Jamie and Joe next. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll let Domingo worry about that uh, over the next 10 days. I like that. Uh, I uh, So Aaron Judge yesterday promised choice words for Blue Jays broadcasters. I wonder if our next guest heard any. Caleb Joseph, former <laughs> MLB catcher and current Sportsnet analyst. How about it, Caleb? Did Aaron Judge scold you or anyone you know yesterday? <laughs> Uh, no, he didn't. And you know what? What? What are they supposed to do? I mean, you you've got a close up, a split screen, and everybody sees what's going on. Everybody notices Aaron Judge not once, but multiple times. Everybody sees his eyes shifting over. What are Buck and Dan supposed to do? Just totally ignore it, and then there's going to be Toronto fans going, Hey, what's he looking at? And why aren't they saying something about it? Which team are they really rooting for? So, <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, you know what? I think what makes me angry is everybody is all up in arms about this on their side, the New York Yankee fans. And the guy got caught. I mean, period. The guy got caught. Don't, don't give me this BS about guys chirping in the bench. That's a lie. That's BS. The guy was getting something, and I'm 99% sure it was either some sort of tip or some sort of location. He was getting something. They've got Jake Bauer getting something as a left-handed hitter. This is not this is not anything that's, that's new. This is not anything that's that doesn't go on. It's part of the, the the game. But when you get caught, you better man up and and be able to take the heat. Period. Well, yeah, that's the thing I couldn't just, I couldn't quite wrap my head around it. And again, like you've been around the game, you would understand the the rules written and unwritten about it. I don't understand why they didn't just pull a John Schneider and say, shut up. Yeah, we did it. Why don't you hide your signs better? Like, that's the part I can't understand is the getting their arms back. If this was, if this was being accused of Astro level stuff, then I could understand the, whoa, hold on. We're not doing that. There's been a part of the game forever. There's a reason guys decide, disguise things when people are at second base or whatever. That's the thing I just can't get my, I can't wrap my head around. And like, I, I know you just kind of touched on it there, but does it, does it make sense to you that the Yankees wouldn't just take a more aggressive tact of, yeah, we did it. Protect your signs. Like that's the part I can't understand, Caleb. Yeah. I, I just, I don't think anybody's going to admit uh, to 
trying to have that type of game gamesmanship, especially considering that they have been busted by MLB right. <laughs> or some, you know, some, some kind of tough stuff. Right. I don't think there's ever going to be a point where they actually admit it. Uh, but I mean, let's go grow up, like quit, quit, quit <laughs> blaming the Blue Jays broadcasters, quit blaming all these other people because you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar. I mean, that's that's just ridiculous, and I like Aaron Judge. I mean, we mm-hmm. we we have the same agent, uh, great guy, <laughs> phenomenal guy. And I, do I hate it that he's getting like this negative attention? Absolutely. But you know what? If you didn't want the negative attention, then stop getting location from somebody. And there's like 35 cameras in Rogers Center or whatever, and you're one of the best players on the planet. They're they're, they're going to have a camera on every inch of your body. So if, if you at all times, so, you know, that's something that I learned early on was when you are on the major league field, you, you've got to assume that everything is being caught and everything is being recorded. So, you know, it's risky. If if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to do that, it's risky and you better be able to take the heat. Do you read anything into the fact, like, uh, you know, the what's the age-old saying, right? If you aren't cheating, you aren't trying. Do you connect at all uh, uh, the guy getting, uh, Domingo getting tossed from the game last night with the sticky stuff on his hand to the sign stealing? Like, is that kind of, yeah, if you're doing this, of course you're going to try to get an edge there, or are those kind of completely separate in- entities to you? Yeah, they're, they're totally separate to me. Uh, the Aaron Judge stuff is gamesmanship, uh, Herman stuff is just flat out cheating. I mean, you, you, that that is, as per the rules, the last couple of years, they do not want pitchers having anything on their hands, and they have provided rosin behind the uh, behind the mound, and he's just clearly cheating. And this guy, I mean, are we serious? This guy tries to pull the same stunt a month ago in a baseball landscape that is really, really, really trying to cut down on this sticky stuff. And the exact same umpiring crew, I don't know if, if you guys have covered that or whatever, but mm-hmm. a month ago, this exact same umpiring crew had an issue with Domingo Herman in New York. And sure enough, a month later, he comes out with the same type of stickiness. And, you know, crew chief James Hoy, they got, they got scrutinized pretty heavily a month ago for not throwing him out. Uh, I think even John Boyd did like a, a thing on, on Twitter, breaking it down. And yeah, he flirted with fire a little bit in that start a month ago, but then comes out last night with what James Hoy said was the stickiest hand he's ever touched and tries, <laughs> tries to do it again. These are two totally separate entities. When, when information is freely given, I'm talking about signs. I'm talking about uh, tells where, Pitchers, you know, or, or different players will get into patterns. You know, the Aaron Judge stuff for me is no different than a runner at first base getting a great jump off of a pitcher and stealing a base because the pitcher held the ball for three seconds every single time and then threw home and got into a pattern. That, that to me is just information that's freely given and that's gamesmanship. When you're putting stuff on your hand, that's just straight up cheating. And yet Herman's three clean innings will live in the books forever. Like, is that an acceptable outcome? Like I, I know we're resigned to just throwing our hands up and, and kind of accepting that we can do nothing about this, but like, 
that's unjust, right? Could they could they just check the guy before the inning instead of after? Like I I was trying to understand why the check. I understand afterwards, but if you're really worried about stopping something before it happens, wouldn't you want to check a guy as he's going to the mound, Caleb? Or is there worry about something stuck in the pocket and you do your business out there? Is that kind of the thought process there? You think? It could. I, I kind of wondered that as well myself because if I was a pitcher, I'd be loading up at the beginning of the inning. And I don't think people understand that for the most part, when you're talking about something like uh, uh spider tack or bullfrog and rosin, which is, which is sunscreen and rosin. These are two types of, of substances guys used. And I'll, I'll be honest. I used them too. I mean, everybody was doing it. So those are the type of substances you use over time. I would say, Goodness, I don't know exactly how many for each pitcher, but I mean, over time, it, it wears off. So you're talking about 10, 15 pitches, it, it, it will begin to wear off, and you won't be able to really feel it as much. So if I was a pitcher and I, I really wanted to kind of skirt the rules, I'd load up before the inning, like you said, and hopefully 10, 15, 20 pitches into the, into the outing, into the inning, it, it's it's gone. Uh, the residue has just left the, the fingertips and it's gone. And then by the time they check you after the inning, then, uh, then you're good. But again, I, I think, I think some of it has to do with, yeah, guys can figure out ways to, to load up on the hat or the belt or, you know, pant leg or something. And, uh, so they want to make sure both before and after, but I, I thought that, that, that check was prompted by John Schneider, I believe, or the Blue mm-hmm. Jays, because that's that's not normal. It's not normal for for pitchers to be checked before the inning, unless it's a reliever coming in in a position where a team can walk it off. I was listening to Ben Wagner on the radio call uh, for a couple innings last night, and it was while the Herman stuff was playing out. And he mentioned that like Yankees are always team to to watch in uh, when it comes to this. And I get there's like a dishonesty thing there. And I and I'm lumping in the judge thing and the sign stealing and all that as well here. But like the Herman thing is one thing. But when it comes to picking up on trends, is that more high end scouting with the Yankees than it is dishonesty when it comes to like this being a characteristic of a specific team? Yeah, it's it's high end intel gathering. Uh, I, I go back to my first year in the big leagues, 2014, the Yankees had Mark Teixeira. They had Derek Jeter. They had Alex Rodriguez. They had Carlos Beltran. They they were a veteran, veteran team. And those guys that had played so long, they knew exactly what they were looking for. Brian McCann was over there. They, they had guys that had been doing stuff like this for a long time, knew exactly what to look for in terms of tells. And I think it's a more of a generational thing. So a lot of those players taught some of the current Yankees and it's, it starts to just kind of trend down. And I played for multiple teams and every team kind of had their own uh, system or way of looking for stuff like that. And it's not cheating. It's, it's not cheating. If you're getting the information that is freely given, it's not cheating, but Yes, there are organizations that have people in the underground world down there in the clubhouse <laughs> that are, are hammering out video uh, trying to figure out if they can find something. And that's just gamesmanship. That's, that's okay. Every, everybody's going to get into patterns and, 
And uh, that's why you have to be so diligent on your side to make sure that you're not giving anything away that's obvious. The problem is normally it's really, really tough to catch and it's too late before you catch it. So when stuff starts to seem a little bit out of whack, say two or three home runs straight off of a reliever, that's when your ears kind of perk up. You kind of start looking around wondering something's not right here. And typically once you catch it, it's too late. So I I thought maybe this is a blessing in disguise that hopefully happening now versus October is something that, that the Blue Jays can avoid. But yeah, this is, this is going around all around the league. There are a couple teams in this division that are, that are a little bit better and a little bit more ahead of the curve than others. And I think Yankees are probably one of them. The Yankee way, uh, fan morning show, Brent cutting, Justin Cuthbert talking to Caleb Joseph here. Uh, all right. We are, uh, we're 18 minutes into our conversation now and we have not mentioned the name. I don't think Alec Manoa, <laughs> which is kind of wild, Caleb. Uh, that's the whole reason we yeah. wanted to talk to you. Then everything that happened last night, you're a catcher. You have worked with guys who are playing above their heads. You have worked with guys who are going through rough spots. Obviously there are mechanical things and the slider is not working for him right now, but just talk about kind of your role as a catcher, Kirk or Jansen, whoever it's going to be. What is their job in kind of taking a young player like Manoa through this? And I want to be clear, not to put it all on them. Manoa's got to figure this out. Pete Walker's going to be part of the equation as well, but what is the catcher's job when a player like Manoa is, you know, he's not sliding a little bit. This is the biggest scuffle he's had in his young big league career what's your job and how can how can those guys help him through it well it's a great question it's well, thank you caleb it's it's yeah it's endless the the what what do you do what can you do the list is is truly endless you, you've got to you've got to be available and you've got to be open to to everything um and sometimes you need to be the therapist that sometimes you need to be the counselor at sometimes you need to be the encourager. Uh, sometimes you need to be the hard, hard rear, uh, there, there you've got to be everything and you got to be on high alert just for him in general, young player, even though this is a big persona with, uh, with a lot of successful awards under his belt already, you've got, you've got to be careful. And these are the type of slides that can really test you mentally and the game is relentless. The game does not care who you are. It, it will put you flat on your, on your back quicker than, than you can even blink. And nobody feels sorry for Alec Manoa. Nobody feels sorry. So, and I'm not saying he feels sorry for himself at all. But the game is so tough. And as a catcher, you've got to find ways to, to try and put him in positions to succeed, whether that's setting up a little bit different, whether that's trying maybe different patterns, which, I mean, we've even seen him try to throw, you know, more right on right changeups. That just shows you how little confidence he has in that slider, but there's very subtle things you can do, but at the same time, it's, it's not the catcher's fault. He can't throw the pitch. You can have the best intention as a catcher. You can set up in the perfect spot. You can have the perfect sequence. Everything could be right, and if they can't execute the pitch, it's it's tough. I think the Castellanos at bat in Philly was a perfect example of that. He threw a non-competitive slider, came back with a backdoor sinker, 
It was a great pitch, and then he brushed him back twice on the inner half. The sequencing was perfect. He had Castellanos one ball and two strikes, and he had him set up for a slider just on the outer half. It just had to get to the outer half, and he would have whiffed. He ended up throwing it right down the middle, middle down, and Castellanos was able to, you know, one-handed, two-run homer, three-run homer, whatever it was, uh, down the left field line. But as a catcher, I've, I've been to this before. I've seen and I've had – multiple guys that just really, really struggled. And you, you've got to, you, sometimes you just got to get back there and pat him on the back. I know it sounds really tough because you look at like the me- actual mechanics, you look at the spin rates and stuff, and there's nothing that is really standing out that is an absolute finger pointer going, that's it. If we can just fix this, we'll totally fix Alec Manoa. And I think there's a good deal of the stuff that could be between his ears in terms of once you start to lack confidence in this league, it will, it will just continue to beat you down and you've got to find ways to stay confident. And I, I guarantee you, I just, I've been to this. I've seen, I've seen guys, they, they hype themselves up for four days. They get excited. They have a good bullpen session. They, they feel like they're onto it. They've got it. And then five pitches into the, the actual game that they start, the ball's missing the same way that it, was missing the sliders not moving and it's a oh no here we go again and then it's really hard to kind of gain that confidence and that self-assurance that you just spent four days trying to talk yourself into it's the old old question what comes first confidence or success you know do you do you gain confidence by having success or you know do you gain success by having confidence and all the back and forth mm-hmm a tough, tough go for Alec Manoa right now. Um, when it comes to catching, the counselor, the therapist, the encourager aspect, I, I don't think that's what Fangraphs had in mind when it rated the Blue Jays catching tandem number one in Major League <laughs> Baseball uh, coming into the season. But if you go by Fangraphs, I mean, it's kind of been a disappointing year for at least that position sure. and that platoon. Yeah. What do you make of the state of Blue Jays catching right now? Catching is hard. Catching is very hard. And if you, if you look around the game and just the history of the game, when you think of catchers that can do both at a very high level, at a very high level, maybe three to five of those 60, 70, 80 catchers that will make an appearance in the big leagues a year can really, really do it. Really do it. I'm talking about really, really good defense and really, really good offense. And I think there are times when – these two can provide both of those, but catching is, is hard. And when you have the responsibility, I feel like that Jansen and Kirk had coming into this season with the question marks surrounding Barrios, the question marks surrounding Kikuchi, not knowing what exactly you were going to get with Chris Bassett, especially with a couple shaky spring training starts. And even that first real shaky start in St. Louis, there's a lot that has been, kind of put on their table in terms of defense. And I think both of them just kind of had a couple things happen early on in the season. Kirk obviously showing up a little bit late to spring training because of the birth of his child. Absolutely understandable. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I've got three kids. I just have a, I have a two and a half month old, three month old at home and I'm exhausted. And you have a spring training baby. You're absolutely exhausted. I feel like that, that, kind of set him back a little bit. Um, and he's still just trying to climb, fight, find that uphill battle to really get his direction and timing going. 
And then same thing with Danny. I mean, Danny, Danny was sick for you know, a really, really bad stomach bug. He was out for four or five days. He lost probably six or seven pounds easily. And yes, that was four or five weeks ago. Some people are probably rolling their eyes saying, Joseph, that was that was almost two months ago, man. Are you serious? Well, I'm, I, I'm I, sitting I, here I going, I got to get that viral bug. I could drop a couple LBs yeah, right. is what I was thinking. Yeah, there you go. They're, they're probably, they're probably uh, sitting there going, what are you talking about, bud? Once you kind of start fighting that uphill battle, it's really hard to, to kind of make it up. And the, the tendency is to want to make it up really quickly. So you start to press and you want to get, you know, the, the 150 average to 280 in two games, in one game. And, and it's this kind of very tough battle that you fight mentally and physically trying to, trying to do that. I just, both of them, they just haven't really hit their stride. But when, when they do, they're, 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 they're a deadly force behind the plate when you combine their skills together. They can, for 162, really do something. But, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's disappointment there, especially offensively. I think defensively they've been, uh, they've been pretty good. They've done a really nice job with a lot of the pitchers and uh, getting them into the positions they are. But, yeah, offensively, I think there's a, a lot still to be desired there. Two more big games against the Yankees to come here. Uh, we'll be watching, Caleb. Thanks for the time this morning. Yeah, you got it. That's no Caleb. Gets Caleb Joseph, uh, sportshead analyst, former MLB catcher. Uh, just a reminder, Yankees-Jays will conclude this week. Two more games. We've got Cole Bassett, and we've got Cortez and Jose Barrios. But we also have a big series coming up this weekend versus the Baltimore Orioles, and we should give some tickets out for that series. Uh, it's the unofficial start of summer with the Blue Jays May 2-4 weekend presented by Ryobi to celebrate. We're giving away tickets uh, uh, versus for Friday's game, rather, versus the Baltimore Orioles. To enter, listen to our daily code word, text it to 590 to 590. Today's code word is Chapman, not a Roldis, Matt. Text Chapman to 590-590 right now for your chance to win. This won't be a weekend you want to miss. Also, the first 15,000 entrants on Friday, Blue Jays Mesh Hat. First 15,000 on Saturday, Blue Jays Pickleball Paddle. So text Chapman for your chance to win tickets to Friday night's game versus the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, we're going to dive back into the Leafs discussion with Steve Coolius, who also go NHL-wide, uh, host of the Power Play on SiriusXM NHL Network Radio. We will do that next. Next.